Good. I've had the odd occasion when I'm on camera and I look like I've literally just come back from a holiday, just lobster red. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't want the authorities to get hold of that film, Dave, and think I've been away on holiday illegally. It would be the worst. So, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for coming along today in person. And hello, everybody watching at home. Uh, we miss you. And, um, yeah, we pray that you're having a wonderful time and that God is blessing you through worship and uh, through the prayers today and, and all that we're doing. Um, if you want to open your Bibles, if you have them, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark's Gospel again today, chapter 1. And we're going to be picking Mark's narrative up again from verse 21, running through to verse 34. So if you have your Bibles, you may turn now to Mark's Gospel. Before we read, I'm going to pray. Father, you are God in the heavens. You are Lord over all. Every single atom in this entire cosmos was created by you. And there is not one single atom that exists outside of your sovereign decrees. You are God and truly Lord over all. And Lord, we pray that as we meet today to listen to the word spoken by your Holy Spirit, inspired through the hand of your servant Mark, we pray that we would come to know something more of you. Lord, we pray that it would draw us closer to you in our relationship. We pray even that there may be some watching today's broadcast who don't yet know you, whose hearts would be struck, and that they might have grace to repent and come to know you today. Father, I pray that you would grant me grace not to get in the way of your word today. I pray you would help me to preach it as it is, not add my own colorings to it, but allow your word to speak truly through me in order to build up your children. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And Lord, while we're here together as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we also want to take this moment to lift up our nation to you once more. Uh, I really want for you as you're sitting here praying with me to actively be praying just as I'm praying as well um, for our leaders. Lord, we, we pray for our government. We pray for Boris Johnson, for the cabinet. We pray for all those, Lord God, who are steering the ship, so to speak, politically and medically in the nation right now, and those in education as well, Father. We, we pray, Father, for your hand of guidance upon this nation. Lord, we bring before you right now our sins, and we ask, Father, that you would forgive us of our sins as a nation, as we have so often rebelled against you. Lord, we pray forgiveness for our sins today. And Lord, we pray that we might be seeing a new start for our nation. We pray that cases and hospitalizations from this terrible virus would continue to nosedive. And we pray, Lord God, for a day coming soon when we're going to be able to gather again without masks, without separation, um, able to meet together as one. And Lord, we also pray for all those suffering in hospital right now or at home. 
we pray, Lord God, your healing touch upon them. We, we know that we serve a healing God. We serve the great physician, and we know that you are a God of healing. And so we pray right now, Father, for those even at New Cross Hospital right now, we pray your mighty hand of healing touch them. Lord, that we'd begin to see people who uh, have very little chance of survival begin to uh, recover their health, even now as we pray, Lord God. Uh, we pray the impossible because we believe in an impossible, a God of the impossible. We pray this in your mighty name, Lord. Please hear our prayers today. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read the entire first chapter of Mark. Um, I'm going to read it to you because I, I so think that context is important. Um, and I, I, I don't want to treat you as fools. Um, it's very easy to quote one verse and make it sound like it means something, but when you hear the context, you find it could mean quite another. So in the interest of holding today's passage in the context it was originally written in, we're going to read the whole first chapter of Mark together, and then we're going to get closer into these few verses. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare, make way, sorry, the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes who, one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he, taught that, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
and immediately was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town so that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter." There's probably one word that's really stuck out to you as I've read that, and it's the word immediately. Immediately, immediately, immediately. This is the way that John, sorry, that Mark writes. It's the Greek word euthis. All the time, immediately, immediately. He's basically covering Jesus' start to his earthly ministry in rapid fire. It's like an action movie. Immediately, all the time. And we pick this uh, ministry up in the town of Capernaum, which is located on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee, that heart-shaped lake in the north of the Promised Land. Jesus enters this town with his newfound disciples, having just called them from their fisher boat, fishing boats, which are presumably within a stone's throw of Capernaum. You might wonder why we bother to talk about things like this, geography and place names and towns. But um, I find it's really important, actually, for a Christian to ground their knowledge of the Bible in actual sort of tangible facts, you know, um, because I think that the secular world has sold us the lie that the Bible is essentially a fairy tale. 
and that the places that it mentions are not real places or never were the kind of place that the Bible says that they were. And so when we learn about the kind of the dirt and the grit and the stones of the places that the Bible mentions, I think it grounds our faith in reality, in history, because Jesus did become incarnate, right? He, he became man. And he was just like you and I in the sense he had flesh. He walked places. He, he lived in places. He ate um, with friends in places. I think it helps us to have these two things wedded together. You know, history, archaeology, and also what we know of Jesus theologically and experientially. These things have to be knitted together. So Capernaum at the time, although now it's just kind of foundations and rubble, at the time it was actually a bustling fishing port on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a big trading center. If you know anything about Israel, um, you have this huge trading valley running through the north of the country from west to east. It's called the Valley of Jezreel. And uh, people would sail into the ports of Tyre and, and Sidon, and that they would then uh, carry all of their trade along this valley through the mountains. You could get right up to Damascus, out towards Syria. So it just so happened that Capernaum and the northern coast of Galilee was right there on that trading route. So Capernaum was really a center of trade. It was busy. You would have had uh, quite a cosmopolitan culture there in the first century. It also had some importance as a political center. Since in those days, under the Roman Empire, the southern part of Judea, so Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, that was all governed by a guy called Herod Antipas. He was given kind of a, a regal title, and he ruled over that area. This is the same Herod who um, invites Jesus to, to come and, and see him just before the crucifixion. And then in the north, um, running from the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, right up to Mount Hermon towards Syria, you have another ruler who was Philip the Tetrarch, who was... Uh, related to Herod. And so um, you have Capernaum right on the boundary between the two. So it has some political significance as well. Of course, we read later in the Gospel accounts of a, a centurion who was in Capernaum who seemed to have good relations with the locals. It would have been a very busy, bustling, cosmopolitan town at the time when Jesus entered it. Now, if you were to go there today, you're not likely to see anything like that. In fact, uh, there's little left of that town today. Um, but you would see um, foundations and footings of the old town itself. And in fact, there is still one building in Capernaum that, that's sort of half standing today. And that's a fourth century limestone um, synagogue. And now, interestingly enough, um, the rock that's around Capernaum isn't limestone, it's black basalt. So this was obviously something that was imported in, built with some expense. Underneath this beautiful, classic-looking uh, synagogue is another foundation. It's in the same footings, it's the same size. It is also a synagogue, but the, the stones in this foundation under the limestone synagogue are black basalt. Archaeologists believe that was the synagogue that we're reading about right now in Mark chapter 1. It, it's still there. It, it just exists under this lovely white one. Whenever you're in Israel and you watch and geek out like I do on a lot of archaeological videos, wherever you find lots of things built on top of one another like a stack, that's usually a place of great archaeological historical importance. 
Uh, so we know where this synagogue was in Capernaum. And less than a stone's throw from this synagogue, interestingly, there's a massive new church building. In fact, if you go onto Google Earth, you can zoom in and find it. I like to do that kind of thing. And this new church is built on stilts. It's suspended in midair above the ancient footings of old Capernaum. You can actually look underneath this new church building and you can see what looks to be a house, the footings of a house. And in this house, there's graffiti on the walls. That graffiti is written in Latin, ancient Greek, Koine Greek, and Aramaic. It's Christian graffiti. And it dates back to the late first century AD. How do they know that? Because they find pottery inside of the house footings there. Out around this house, there is built a later structure, a Byzantine structure, dating from the reign of Constantine, when churches were able to be built because they weren't under horrific persecution. And this is a Byzantine church. What archaeologists believe is that the house where they find that graffiti was none other than Peter's house, which was then turned into a church, an undercover church during the first century and second century where there were Christians meeting. And eventually, a Byzantine church was built over it. You see this pattern right the way through um, ancient Israel, especially in Jerusalem. Wherever you find a Byzantine church, there's usually some kind of a site of Christian significance lying underneath it. Um, so really interesting that we can ground everything we're reading today in archaeology. The New Testament, as well as being the living word of God, brothers and sisters, is also an excellent witness to first century history. Don't, don't let anybody tell you that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up fables. You know, it, it's not true. Historians use the Bible as a guide to understanding first century history. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to know that so we don't get flapped by the village atheist when he tells us that your Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories. Jesus enters this synagogue then, we hear, on the Sabbath, and he begins to teach. Now, important to say as well, synagogues were not like churches. It wasn't that Jesus walked in, grabbed the mic off the local vicar and began to preach. It wasn't the same kind of deal. Uh, synagogues are effectively like local assembly halls. There, there wasn't a, a clergy given to each synagogue. These were buildings where there was an owner, a ruler rather, of the synagogue. And the Jews would come and they would hear the scriptures read. And if there were a traveling preacher or a prophet, uh, they were free to stand up and deliver a message. And that's just what Jesus did. But we read that his teaching astonished those who heard it. Mark doesn't record for us what Jesus actually said but he keeps Jesus himself in the crosshairs. Mark wants us to pay attention to Jesus and his person, not necessarily what he was teaching. Matthew and Luke pay more attention to the actual teachings. Mark just wants us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now, there are many today who I think, to be honest, still miss what Mark wants for us to see. There are many who focus in on the teachings of Jesus. They're happy to look at the Beatitudes, at the Sermon on the Mount, but not necessarily too keen to look at the man himself and certainly his claims. They miss the wood for the trees. Brothers and sisters, let's be careful not to do that. 
The purpose of Jesus' teachings was to point to him, not simply to serve us as moral platitudes to live better by, though you can do that. And that's not a bad idea when running a household, a family, or a business. But Jesus' intention wasn't to come and be a philosopher or some kind of politician. Jesus came to be the Messiah, the Savior of mankind. So it's important to follow what Mark is asking us to do here, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not get drawn away simply into looking at the uh, teachings that he brought, though those are certainly very important. This witness tells us that they, they were astonished because Jesus taught as one having authority. Exousia is the word used. And in Mark, that word, exousia, appears nine times. Nine times in the Gospel of Mark. Six of those nine times, it was with reference to Jesus. And the other three, it has a reference to the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles. So every, exist, every instance of that word used by Mark always is something to do with Jesus. It's always something to do with his authority. So it's kind of a key word. Mark's wanting us at this early stage of his gospel to recognize Jesus is the son of God. He teaches with authority. He carries this power. His teaching was astonishing and it was authoritative. Jesus' teaching is contrasted with the scribes as well. Have you heard about the scribes before? The scribes were basically a group of people in first century Italy who were highly trained. These were the theologians of their day. They were well-versed in the Torah. They read many different rabbis' teachings. And when they would teach, they would often debate around a certain point of doctrine or theology. And what they'd do is they'd bring in, well, Rabbi, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. And over here, we've got Rabbi such-and-such, and he thinks this. And so you would get three or four differing views and perhaps not always reach a conclusion, or at least the scribe may not want to pin his colors to the mass. But with Jesus, we get something very different. Jesus comes in and preaches with authority. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's not into quoting lots of names and never arriving at a point. He preaches as if the Bible was his own words. And this caused offense in amongst the scribes. They thought this was extremely arrogant, presumptuous, and even uh, ultimately blasphemous. But they failed to see many of them how it was really only Jesus that had the authority to preach the word in this manner, since it was he himself who had authored it in, in a way through the power of the Holy Spirit. These were his words. This was his scripture. And so when he taught, he had the right to teach with authority and to land clearly on any point of doctrine and articulate it perfectly. Matthew 11 verses 5 and 6 says this, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I think there are many in these days, theologians, very high-minded people, very intelligent, educated individuals, theologians, who have the same problem with Jesus. They find his teaching too clear for their liking. You know, I think sometimes because we're living here 2,000 years after these events occurred, 
not saying all Christians do, but sometimes I find Christians wondering what relevance this book can have to them. Oh, we live in a world of smartphones. We live in a world where there is cutting-edge medicine. We, we have electric cars. How can the words of a first-century preacher have anything to say to us here? So advanced in the 21st century. But the truth is, despite all of our technological advances, nothing has changed in the makeup of man. When you lift up the bonnet, the problem is the same. Man is every bit as sinful as he was in the first century AD. And so, the same diagnosis that Jesus made about man in the first century AD still runs true today in the 21st century AD. Man is sinful. Man hates God outside of the grace of God. And just as the scribes rejected that clarity in the first century, many liberal theologians reject that Jesus today. They make known their hatred for the Jesus of the Bible by carving up the New Testament and deciding for themselves which parts of the New Testament they will keep and which they will throw away. They decide for themselves which parts of the Gospels describe the true historical Jesus and which describe the religious Jesus. That's blasphemy. That's idolatry. That's making a God of ourselves. This is, for me, so important for us to recognize and to guard ourselves against getting offended at Jesus. One thing is people like those on the Jesus Seminar, if you've heard of them. What they usually dispense with first is the supernatural stuff. You've got to get rid of that, haven't you? Otherwise, who's going to believe our message? This has been going on for dozens of years, hundreds of years, in fact, ever since Darwin's Origin of the Species, going right back into the 1800s. Liberal Christians have been running for the hills trying to explain away the supernatural elements of the gospel to try and make ourselves more appealing to a godless world. Well, what happens when we do that is we end up with something that is nothing like Christianity. Christianity is a supernatural faith. If you shell Jesus of his miracles, of his exorcisms, you do not have the Jesus of the Bible anymore. You have something in your own making. You have a God in your own image. And that's not the God of the Bible, and that Jesus cannot save anybody. Christianity is a supernatural faith. And what follows here proves this to us. Immediately after Jesus taught, a man with an unclean spirit enters in. An unclean spirit. We don't often think in those terms, do we, here in the West? A man with a spirit. What does that mean? Though the modern secular world is skeptical of the existence of anything other than the natural, the Bible is absolutely certain on it, very clear. Angels and demons absolutely exist. They cohabit this world that we live in. They are not a figment of the imagination. They are not hallucinations of scared people. 
demons exist according to the Bible. Demons are in fact mentioned in 19 out of 27 New Testament books. Now, what we see demons doing primarily in the New Testament is they cause harm to the saints. That's the, the essence of what we need, need to know about demons. They cause trouble. Um, they can cause physical violence. They cause muteness in Matthew 9. There's blindness, Matthew 12 and 22. They torment individuals. They can cause sickness. They can cause maladies, health issues. Um, they can also cause individuals to act in a self-destructive manner, uh, casting themselves down, throwing themselves in the fire, frothing at the mouth, all kinds of nasty things. Um, and I, I think it's important to say that we, we needn't, because we know that demons exist, it's important as Christians not to then think that behind every sickness and every issue there's a demon, right? There is a part of Christianity in this day and age that wants to look for a, de a demon behind everything, uh, but I don't think we have warrant to believe that from the New Testament. Demons are real, and I think it would be foolish for us to think that there's any less activity today on the demonic front than there was then in the first century. I, I think that would be a foolish thing to think. It's perhaps just more well hidden in this country. I remember um, ministering in Ethiopia going back three, four years now. And um, people always say this, but, but out in other nations of the world, this stuff is, is overt. It's out there, you know. Um, we got followed around by witch doctors while we were preaching in the villages of what they call malaria country. That was scary, actually. They told me when I was going to Ethiopia, I didn't need a malaria jab or a malaria is a pill, I think. You don't, they said I didn't need it because I was going to Addis Ababa. I said, oh, you won't get it there. And when we got to Addis, um, the missions team we were working with said, right, let's drive you out to uh, the preaching ground where you'll be ministering. And we said, how far is it? They said, oh, it's just 20 minutes. Around about an hour and 20 minutes later, we arrive in this like mud hut village in the middle of nowhere and people are riding horses. There's no, there's like not really any cars around. Uh, we didn't know where we were for the whole week we were ministering there. When we got home, um, I spoke to somebody who knew Ethiopia well and they said, oh, where were you? I said, oh, well, I know that we traveled like an hour and 20 minutes in this direction. And they said, oh, straight into malaria country, right? I was like, oh my gosh, Lord Jesus, please let me be all right. Um, so yeah, like out there, it's overt. It's overt, you know, we, we saw all kinds of crazy things um, happen. You know, we had, um, as I was in ministry one day, my friend was preaching and, and this young boy literally just kind of like flipped up out of the crowd up onto the stage and just started writhing like a snake, um, you know, so it just was wacky. Um, lots of other things happened that you're not accustomed to seeing with Western eyes, but that doesn't mean to say that the demonic is only active in third world countries, right? That, that would be dumb to think that, that'd be really stupid. And in fact, there's a, a film, The Usual Suspects, 1995, the last, Jamie knows, the last line in this film from Kevin Spacey is this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Right? We're fools if we think that there's no demonic activity in the West because people are just nice, right? In fact, I, I can tell you, I could tell you stories you believe, believe you me, I could tell you stories about demonic activity, witchcraft, occult, happening here in the UK. 
I've experienced it firsthand. Um, so this stuff is real. It's out there. And as Christians, it's not to freak out and start thinking everything is a demon. You know, I need to plead the blood on my car. I need to get the anointing oil out and just daub every wall. It's more that we are equipped and ready on guard, ready to engage in spiritual warfare. This stuff is real. And uh, we do ourselves a disservice by pretending it's not here. Um, we must be on guard, as Paul said, you know. We must put on the full armor of God, brothers and sisters. So what happens then? This man with a demon comes in. And this demon cries out, it speaks through the agency of a man. So another thing that we see demons doing is they can speak through the agency of an individual. This demon cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, Holy One of God. Things we can deduce from this. Number one is that demons can have knowledge. The demon knew who Jesus was. Um, we know that uh, in Acts 19, we read about the seven sons of Sceva. You know the story where there's these Jewish uh, exorcists trying to cast demons out. They try to cast a demon out. The evil spirit answers them and says, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Who are you? Now, the Bible is clear and tells us that demons do have a level of knowledge about persons. Certainly they were aware of who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. And the demon here in Capernaum didn't only know who Jesus was, he also knew something of his future. He prophesies. He says, have you come to destroy us? The demon knew that it was this Jesus who someday was going to cast him and all of his um, demon buddies into the lake of fire, right? He, he feared for that and maybe thought that his moment had come now. It's really interesting um, what Jesus does in that the, he, this demon speaks and later on in this same passage, we hear that he casts out many demons, but he wouldn't allow them to speak. That's interesting, isn't it? Why didn't he allow them to speak? Surely that would have been good for his kind of ministry, right? You know? Um, now, what's interesting, James Edwards, the commentator, says this, the questions about Jesus' identity come from the human side. You see that? When Jesus heals and casts out many demons, they say, what is this? Who is, what is this? Who is this? Who is this person? So the questions about Jesus' identity come from the human side in the early chapters of Mark, and the answers come sometimes in part from the demonic side. So verse 24, verse 34, chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 7, we've got demons testifying about Jesus. The effect of the interplay between human questions and demonic answers reveals that the human participants don't yet understand Jesus' identity. They don't yet know who he is, whereas the demons do. And, and that, in essence, isn't because they believe by faith or they're, you know, they're, they're kind of being enlightened. It's that they belong to the same spiritual realm, right? They, they have seen things that human eyes haven't seen, which is, is very interesting and I think ties into why Jesus doesn't want them to testify about him at that moment. He also, this demon, calls Jesus the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. That's actually a title that doesn't appear too often in your Bible. But it is a messianic title. It's used in Psalm 16, verse 10. You will know the one. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Which is obviously um, 
a testimony to Jesus' resurrection. So it's speaking of the Messiah. This demon knows Jesus' future. He doesn't perhaps know exactly when these things will take place. Certainly the demonic realm didn't have all the knowledge of how Jesus would accomplish the final victory. If they did know, the devil and all of his demons would have done everything they could to prevent the crucifixion. But we of course know that they didn't do that, did they? They killed the Lord of glory and scored an own goal at the same time. They, they didn't know the manner or how Jesus was going to accomplish this. But they knew enough to know things about him. Uh, they knew that this man was going to someday destroy them. They knew that he was the Holy One, the Anointed One of God. We also learn uh, in this place the uselessness of a mere intellectual knowledge of God. I want you to see this. The demons knew things about Jesus. The demons knew more than the humans knew about Jesus in this context, but it did them no good. It did them no good. You know, twice we're specifically told that the unclean spirits knew our Lord. In one place it says they knew him. In fact, the end of this passage. In another place, the devil, of course, cries out, I know thee who thou art, in old KJV language, the Holy One of God. They knew Christ, but the scribes were ignorant of him. The Pharisees wouldn't acknowledge him. Yet their knowledge... The demon's knowledge was not unto salvation. That's J.C. Ryle. James 2.19 says, You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Luther said this, The life of Christianity consists in possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It's quite another thing to say he is my saviour. He's my Lord. The devil can say the first but only a true Christian can say the second. Can you say that he's your saviour? Can you say he's your Lord? That's the difference, isn't it? Is he my Jesus? Is he my Holy One? Is he my saviour? Rather than is he a saviour? Jesus rebukes the devil. That's the next thing we heard. He says, be silent and come out of him. In fact, a a good translation of that, be silent, would be shut up. It's very clear in the Greek. It's rude. Shut up and come out of him. He spoke with authority, clearly. No incantations, no mixing of potions. Shut up and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed the man, throws him down, cries with a loud voice, and out he comes. Now, this would have astonished them and did, because in the ancient world, we know there were many traveling exorcists, not just Jews, pagans, Greeks, whoever, used to travel around casting out unclean spirits. And they do it by a kind of crazy variety of means. The mixing up of potions was a thing. Incantations, long incantations, was something that Jewish exorcists did. They've even found remains of bodies where a drill mark has been made into the skull. They think that was a kind of primitive method of exercising demons. So they would kind of crudely operate on people in order to get demons out. It was quite a business back then. But instead of that, those watching witness a face-off between dark and light. And it's not even a fair fight. It's not even a fair fight. Shut up and come out of him. And the demon obeys. 
All the way through this passage, Mark is showing us this. He's, he's showing us who Jesus is, not by his teachings, but by what he does. Jesus didn't just overcome sin for us. Mark is saying, Jesus isn't just a savior from sin. It's not just that he has victory over sin for us. He also is victorious over the powers of darkness. He's victorious over the devil. And it's not even a fair fight. It's not even close. I think it's helpful for us as Christians to have a biblical view of the battle between good and evil. It's not some kind of yin and yang thing where there's, you know, a big God on one side and a big devil on the other. It's not even a fair fight. We're talking about the creator versus the creature. The devil is always in God's back pocket. He's always being played. He just doesn't realize it. It's big God, little devil. It's not even a fair fight. Even when the devil does take ground and does utilize, like he does in this passage, somebody and work through them, even then, the Lord is playing this devil like a fool. Do you see? For the glory of God, this devil is cast out. A whole bunch of people get to see Jesus show who he is and see the power of the devil scorned and mocked. It's important for us as Christians to recognize that, not to be blasé, not to think that we can take on the devil ourselves, but to certainly look and say that the devil was no match for Jesus. The powers of darkness were no match for Jesus. You know, you see these memes, don't you, with like Jesus arm wrestling the devil and you're like, it's nothing like that. Jesus squashed the devil under his foot. Just like the prophecy, it's not a fair fight. So the victory that, that Jesus has over the powers of darkness is ours too. By faith, by faith, we overcome the powers of darkness just as he did. We read also later on that he, he heals many who were sick and many who had demons. In fact, it tells us the sun went down, doesn't it? It's, Mark's careful to note that because it was the Sabbath. You know, so Jesus wants to heal after the Sabbath is finished, so you're not supposed to do any work on that day. He heals many with diseases. He casts out many more demons, but watch this. He would not permit them to speak. He wouldn't permit them to speak. Why didn't he let them do that? Because they knew him, it tells us. Now, for any of us today who know anything about business or influence, you, you don't want to shut somebody up who's testifying about you, do you? You know, that's influence, that's usable, that's kind of social credit. Why wouldn't you want to use these testimonies about who you are? It seems confusing at first. But I think it's important to note this. Jesus knew the minds of those around him. We find that out in John, don't we? He knew what was in the heart of men. He knew what was in their heart. He knew what these people around might do if the testimony got out there about him being the Messiah. What kind of a person did the first century Jews overwhelmingly want to be their Messiah? A military man. They wanted their Messiah to ride on horseback, command an army and overthrow the Romans. That's what they wanted. Jesus knew that, and therefore, one reason that he didn't allow these demons to speak 
was that he would not allow himself to be hijacked by these zealots and turned into some kind of military messiah. That was not who he was. Secondly, Jesus wanted people to know who he was by faith. By faith. Not through the testimony of angels and demons. He still wants that today. He wants for us to see him through the eyes of faith. And although there is wonderful evidence for the life, the death, and even the resurrection of Jesus, I teach on these things and I love it. It's incredible how much evidence God left historically concerning the life of Jesus. But he didn't leave us with scientific test tube evidence to believe these things, did he? Empirical evidence. The kind of belief we come to about Jesus is through faith. Through faith. Jesus wanted people to know him by faith. He wanted them to see him not as a military leader, but in his prophetic calling. We actually talked about this a few weeks back when I did the first um, session on Mark, I think it was 16 to 20. We talked about Jesus using language that was really kind of taken straight from the book of Daniel and from Isaiah, identifying himself as the son of man of Daniel chapter 7. And here again, we have Jesus already just beginning to lay the groundwork for people to see him as the suffering servant. You know that, that whole kind of um, passage through Isaiah, from Isaiah 42, you know, um, a, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not put out, um, right through to Isaiah 53, um, the, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's the Messiah. That's who Jesus came to be. And that's who he wanted these people to see him as. He would not be hijacked by political military zealots. What's interesting is that I've just told you, obviously, he wants people to believe in him by faith. But that doesn't mean he doesn't give us anything to go on. You know, he, he leaves us with, with a trail of evidence. It's not true to say that Christian faith is blind. In fact, that's an accusation that many atheists make. Richard Dawkins makes that, the blindness of faith. It's irrational. When in fact, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, Christian faith is something more like trust. You know, I don't know 100% that if I keep shaking this lectern, it's not going to fall apart. But I've got good reason to believe it won't. You know? And faith is somewhat similar. Uh, there are many good reasons to believe in Jesus. Uh, but you still must have faith in him. There's still an element of trust that you have to lean in to him. And unfortunately, we know something of how the Capernians uh, actually ended up relating to what they saw. We, we know something of uh, what they ended up believing about Jesus from later on in the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, verse 13 to 15, Jesus reads out the woes and he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. 
sobering words. You know, I used to think that what the world needed, what the UK needed to see revival was simply that more people would see miracles. I honestly believe that if we could just go out on the streets and the Holy Spirit would work one miracle through us, that that would be the tipping point, that people would see and they would believe. I think that the Bible shows again and again and again that that isn't always the case. It's not always the case. And in fact, graciously, the Lord has worked through me many times to heal people, to heal unbelievers. You know, I've got videos of me walking up to complete strangers and the Holy Spirit has spoken to me about conditions they might have. Completely by grace, worker used to work on the St. Mark's Sainsbury's in Wolverhampton. And I, I had a, a word of knowledge for him that he had a, a painful knee. And he said, yes, I have damaged cartilage in my knee and I can't walk without extreme pain. And we, we prayed for him and the pain left immediately. And I've got countless testimonies like that. Um, we would then preach the gospel to them, tell them about Jesus. Did he believe? No. No. Because it isn't always a matter of evidence. The Bible's clear on that. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. You, you can't give yourself a believing heart. You know, you, you need God to do that. God is the one who gives you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Like, I can't make you believe in Jesus. Only God can do that. Nobody can force you to be a Christian. Only God can give you the power to believe in Christ. But what I can do and what I ought to do, and what you ought to do if you're a Christian, is you ought to invite people to believe. Moreover, you ought to command them to believe. The gospel is a command, isn't it? Jesus came preaching, repent and believe. He didn't preach you know, I've got a good idea. I don't know what you guys think, but I think this might work for us all if we just kind of, I don't know, if we repented maybe. What do you think about that? We, we could try that. Maybe we could try believing and see how we get on. He didn't say that, did he? He's the Lord of glory. He said, repent and believe with the same authority that said to that devil, shut up and come out of him. And so as Christians, the message that we have for the world is the same as what Jesus preached. It's repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. I know that the people I'm preaching to do not have the power within themselves to do that. 1 Corinthians 2 says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness to him. They don't have the power to believe within them. They are not rational beings when it pertains to God. They are irrational. Unbelief is irrationality. Romans 1 tells us that the, the sinner knows God. They know God. But they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So we preach to people knowing that no amount of evidence will convince them. We preach to people knowing <coughs> they could see a miracle right in front of them. They could see a demon cast out and still walk away not believing in Jesus. Why do we preach to them then? 
Why do we keep preaching this gospel if we know that people don't have the capacity in themselves to respond to it? We preach because we believe in a God of grace. We believe in a God who can mightily transform somebody's heart in the click of somebody's fingers. He can give somebody a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. We believe in the preaching of the gospel because we believe in a God of grace. I know that I didn't believe in God simply by my own accord. I know that God saved me. I didn't save myself. God graciously reached down to me. And I pray today, if you're listening to this, that God would give you the ability to repent, to turn to him and to know him, to, to treat him as Lord, to know him as your Lord, not just a Lord. Let's pray. I want for all of you now listening to this, we've just heard a scripture about Jesus casting out demons and healing the sick. So I'm going to pray that the Lord uh, would come today in power, in healing power. So if there is anything you've come into the room with today or if you're at home watching, there's an ailment in your body, there's pain, uh, there's an issue that you're aware of, um, I want you to hold that in your mind right now as we begin, to, we begin to pray. Father, we pray right now that you would begin to come in the power of your Holy Spirit into this place. And I pray, Lord God, that every sickness in this room and in any person listening on the live stream, in the sound of my voice, any sickness must bow the knee to Jesus. We know the end of this world. We have seen forward into the future through the scriptures and that every single thing will bow the knee ultimately to Jesus. And so right now I pray every physical disability, every muscle ache, every blood disorder, every cancer, every sickness must bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Every mental disability, every ounce of depression, every issue of anxiety, every issue uh, and every malady, Lord God, that we are suffering right now, we know it comes under the lordship of Jesus. And Lord, we know your timing is perfect. We know that, Lord. But we pray healing now, even so. And I pray, Lord God, that right now as we pray, sickness would leave, pain would leave. Illness, undiagnosed illness would leave in the name of Jesus right now. Get out in Jesus' name. And we command, Lord God, every demon who may be tempting us, Lord God, to sin, any demon trying to lead us down a path of false teaching and false faith, be gone in Jesus' name. You have no authority here. Holy Spirit, we pray, come in power and begin to fill us afresh. Strengthen us against the enemy this week. Strengthen us in our walk of holiness, we pray. Strengthen us to preach the gospel to our friends and not be ashamed of you, Lord. Oh God, how we want to please you on this earth. you want to stand to your feet if you're able. 
Let's worship God as we finish.